Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. I am not Justin Burke, but I am Chris the Chew Manchu. But welcome back to the Cribsiders. I am joined tonight by some amazing people. Our amazing producer, Dr. Joan Park. Say hi. Hi. And with Justin gone, I have the Maximilian Cruz here. <laughs> hey, everybody. <laughs> Our guest tonight is Dr. Joel Teeter, who will discuss brew or brewy, or I guess we're going to find out how we pronounce it. <laughs> but first, Max is going to remind us what the show is about. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Teeter, who is a pediatric hospitalist and recognized as a national leader in quality improvement education and research, and is the leading expert in brief, resolved, unexplained events. He is an associate professor of pediatrics at Seattle Children's Hospital and the University of Washington, and the director of Seattle Children's Multi-Specialty Maintenance of Certification Program. He is the chair of the AAP Council on Quality Improvement in Patients safety and the chair of the AAP subcommittee on brief resolved unexplained events. He has led many national research projects aimed to improve the quality and equity of healthcare delivery. He's the principal investigator for the Brew QI and Research Quality Improvement Collaborative and has authored over 20 research articles and chapters on the subject. Dr. Teeter tells us how to pronounce brew or brewy, stay tuned and gives framework for risk stratifying and importantly, how to counsel parents and guardians. Without further ado, let's see what's brewing. Oh, that's that good. That was good. <laughs> I wonder what we're going to do. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Teeter. And for our show, do you mind if I just call you Joel? Absolutely. That'd be great. All right. Excellent. Thank you for coming on. And obviously, we're an informal group, so... Calling you by first name helps with the conversation. So i just like to sort of get to know you a little better. The first question I often ask is just sort of, you know, not, not exactly a one-liner. I know we're sort of trying to get away from that. But sir, can you give us a little something to describe yourself, especially outside of medicine? Yeah, um, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, if I had to reduce my current life, I'm a father of four boys, um, twin two-and-a-half-year-olds. Uh, so we're we're quite busy at home with a lot of chaos and just a lot of great child behavior, um, but we're we're enjoying it. And I'm married to a social worker and social justice warrior, which is just a great part of our family identity, if you will. I'm originally from Georgia, but I claim the Pacific Northwest as my home, and I've been out here for about 20 years now. But still, still also. Uh, I'm very fond of Georgia uh, and do miss great many aspects of it. Joan, do you want to lead us off with another question? My question is, what's the best advice you've ever received as a learner or as a teacher in your career? Yeah, that's that's a great question. You know, it's hard to say who told me this, but I think the thing that's really been guiding me since residency is just to be curious 
uh, it, you know, it really is amazing what you can learn when you listen with intention to people, um, particularly, you know, fighting the urge to make assumptions about people and situations. You know, if I, that's just every, whether it be professional, um, you know, clinical, or even just in my own personal life, I find that to be very helpful and, and just a good guide. Max, what do you got? I guess I always really like the failures question. Um, so like, what is your favorite failure and what did you take away from that? How did it change you as either a provider or a person? That's a great question, Max. I, um, it's a, that's a hard one because I'm a quality improvement and patient safety person. <laughs> and so if I had to pick one favorite failure, then I, I might, I worry that I wouldn't learn from all my failures. So I, 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 I I'm going to dodge this question a little bit intentionally. <laughs> well say, played. And, and I'll say, I'll say, I appreciate all my failures because, um, <laughs> Through humility, it, it helps me find a better way to do things. All right. Maybe we should just dive right into it. Joan, do you want to um, give us our little bit of a case and start off with our first questions? Yeah, I would love to. So we have another case from Cashlack Children's here. So Bree is an ex-39-week, or she's 65-day-old girl with no past medical history, and she's brought to the Cashlack ED by her dad. So earlier this afternoon, dad placed her down for a nap, and then several minutes later, he heard what he thought was this coughing or maybe choking noise. And so when he went to the crib, he noticed that her lips were blue and her breathing would alternate between what looked to be like really fast breathing and then pretty slow breathing. So he got really scared and called EMS. Um, he's not really quite sure how long the event lasted. He thinks maybe it was between 30 seconds and five minutes. But all the symptoms resolved before EMS arrived. Dad states that Bree has not had any diarrhea, fevers, increased um, work of breathing, rash, rhinorrhea, cough. Um, and the last feed was about three hours prior to the episode. So a PO intake has been about baseline. And um, she's been having um, baseline urine output as well, about four urine di uh, diapers with urine and three diapers with stool per day. And there are no sick contacts. Um, so in the ED, uh, she is afebrile, her heart rate's 140, respiratory rate is 34, her blood pressure is 97 over 46, and she's sitting well on room air. And physical exam is just notable for a, ha a happy, healthy infant, normal heart, lung, abdomen exam. Skin is warm and pink, and no bruises are noted. So I'm going to kick us off with the first question, which I think is very important to clarify. So do you pronounce it as brew or brew-e? Because it's pretty contentious. <laughs> um, you know, Joan, I get this question a lot, more than I ever imagined <laughs> I would. Um, and we actually had a long conversation with the committee uh, that developed the term and the AAP clinical <laughs> practice guideline. Um, probably longer than was necessary. <laughs> um, wow. To cut to the chase, it's uh, like brew. So the way I uh, wow. think about it is uh, think about your favorite beer or coffee, and that should help you remember it. Now, I, I can see the temptation for brewy for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, the derivation from the term apparent life-threatening event, and people used to call those alties, which is, it's mm. it's interesting because I don't know why we pronounced it in that way either. 
But I think the, the the main reason why the committee decided with brew rather than brewy is we already brewy is a term and we didn't want it to get confused, although it's not a term we frequently use in pediatrics. Wow, I'm really disappointed because I call it brewy all the time, but I will change my practice. You're, um, you're not alone. And I will say at every <laughs> professional meeting, I get at least 10 texts from colleagues around the country asking me the same question. <laughs> I think that should be in the guidelines. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's remarkable. I didn't know higher First level line. individuals were debating this like we were. So thanks, Max. I am writing that mm. down as one of the items for the revision <laughs> for the guidelines. <laughs> now, now I'm I'm a couple of years out of out of training, and back when I was in training, you know, these were alties. And can you sort of describe sort of that evolution, the history on how? The change in the phrasing, how we're approaching this, what, what what's go- what happened here? Yeah, you know, it's I love medical history, and I think this is uh, for me just it's really rooted in something that was happening in the seventies and eighties to children and the families of children, and that was sudden infant death syndrome. And if you could imagine the amount of fear that family members had when there was this sort of I don't know how to describe this, but this awareness, cultural awareness that was blossoming that kids and infants could die in their sleep and we didn't know why. And so parents were extremely worried that this could happen to their children as we are today. Um, But the rates were higher back then. And the understanding was less. And so what evolved over time were caregivers bringing in their children because they had what they perceived as almost a sudden infant death event. So they felt like they rescued them. And so the term evolved near miss sudden infant death syndrome. And so if you can, it's hard to think of a harder term to give or a diagnosis to give a family and then say, go on home, you'll be all right. (laughs) There's nothing reassuring about that near miss SIDS, right? And so what happened in the 80s was through some federal funding, there was a conference that convened a group of experts in sudden infant death. And a lot of them were researchers, some neonatologists. And they said, we've got to come up with a better term for a lot of reasons. But one reason is we need to be able to study it. Like, are there precursors to SIDS that if we recognize them, we can intervene and lower the rate of SIDS? And so they coined this, what was then a chief complaint, as an apparent life-threatening event. And that's where that term came from, was from this, uh, it was an NIH conference at the time. And that term, it was a little bit more loosely defined than Brew. It was not specific. It was meant to, well, I'll actually say it wasn't really clear, was it a chief complaint or was it a diagnostic term? Because it didn't have real clear diagnostic criteria. But for the last, I guess, 20 something years after that term was coined in the 80s, it was by default a discharge diagnosis and a chief complaint at the same time. And that, in my era of training, was really confusing because the parents would come in with a concern. We might be able to readily explain it, but it was hard to switch the diagnosis over, and it was certainly hard to come up with recommendations. So in 2000, 
it was before. So the, uh, the AAP clinical practice guideline came out in 2016 that coined the term brief resolved unexplained events. But leading up to that, we, we got together a group of experts and we said, we need to make some recommendations around these kids because the perception was that a lot of them are healthy. A lot of them have self-limiting problems, but some have really serious problems and we need to be able to study them better. We need to be able to have better terminology, more specific terminology to talk about it as a clinical community and for the families. And so that's where the term brief resolved unexplained events came from. Um, and, the, and again, the intent there was to be more specific. There was also some intention to take away the life-threatening piece from the term apparent life-threatening event because it implied that either the family thought they were life-threatening or that they were in fact life-threatening, which it turns out the extreme exception that, that most of these cases are not life-threatening at all. I can jump in here. So the current guidelines really emphasize kind of about differentiating um, the patients that present with these events as like low risk or lower risk or higher risk. Um, and so why is that distinction so important to even like, you know, parse out? Yeah, well, it's, it's a really good question, Joan, because the perception as particularly as the pediatric hospital medicine community developed and evolved was that now that we have this designated group of physicians that are really focusing and taking care of these kids, there was this wide perception that most of the time these kids have something that's readily explainable or it's not a serious underlying condition, something that if there was a delayed diagnosis, that harm would come to the patient. But we didn't know that at the time, not clearly. And so this leading up to the AAP clinical practice guideline, one of the things that we did do was we did a systematic review of over 20 years of literature from a parent life-threatening event near Miss SIDS to ask that question, like, where is the risk factors? Like, can we determine risk for this serious underlying problem? Because that's really what parents are worried about, what we're all worried about. And then we asked the secondary question of, well, if it's not a serious underlying condition, will it reoccur? So what are the chances that it's going to happen again, which as a parent, you know, you want to know that, particularly if it's an unexplained problem. If there's not diagnostic certainty, you would want to know that. So if you think about risk with those two things in mind, again, do you have a serious underlying diagnosis or do you are, what are the chances that you're going to have another event? Then you can say, well, there is this group that is extreme low risk for either of those two things. And then by default, there's a group that is at an elevated risk compared to that lower risk group. The distinction here is that the higher risk group isn't necessarily at high risk. They're just not at the low risk. Yeah, that's really helpful. And for the sake of reminding us as well as our listeners, could you go through like what that criteria, those risk factors are? So... If you think about an infant that you want to identify as lower risk, generally they're going to be over 60 days or 60 days and over. The way I remember that is just think about the febrile infant. And we tend to make the distinction right around 60 days of age. Um, the other risk factor is prematurity. And that's generally if a kid's born under 28 weeks at all. And then if they are 
corrected gestational age up to uh, 45 weeks. So for example, a kid born at 33 weeks wouldn't, would still have higher risk until they reached 45 weeks post-gestational age. However, if they were born under 28 weeks, really for their whole time period uh, as an infant, they would be at considered higher risk. And that's because of the, the comorbidities related to being such a premature infant. The other risk factor is having a reoccurrent event or an event occurring in clusters. So low risk would be you've never had an event before and you've only had one is the way to think about that. In the AP criteria, there is the duration of event. You will see that people try to distinguish between one more than one minute or less than one minute. And we think a lower time frame for the duration confers less risk. What's challenging is, and your case, I think, really exemplifies this, is that most parents don't have a stopwatch and they don't know how long it occurred. <laughs> and that's important just in the clinical interaction. But imagine trying to do research around that time frame, and it gets really challenging. So I, I say the duration with a caveat. And I, the way I think about it is if it's a really long event, that's probably higher risk. And if it's a short, brief event, certainly under a minute, then it's probably lower risk. The other risk factor is CPR. So if it looks like, based on your history, that CPR was indicated and performed, then that confers higher risk. And I think that makes sense. The other two things that can put you into a higher risk group are if there's concerning historical features or concerning physical exam findings. And so, for example, maybe there's um, a family history of cardiac arrhythmia. And so that may increase their risk of having a prolonged QTC syndrome, for example. And then physical exam findings, sometimes there are subtle physical exam findings like bruising and maybe petechiae over the face, which may indicate a suffocation type injury or there's bruising in an infant that is not even mobile. And that would make you think about child abuse with some subtle physical exam findings. And so it's really important to think about those things and then they do confer risk. So that's the, the overall summary of all the risk factors. Uh, there seems to be quite a few there. And, you know, obviously, you know, if we're evaluating an infant coming in, you know, pulling up a, you know, a nice list and we'll obviously have one in our show notes is there anything like big red flags? Like it sounds like there are a couple that you're you're sort of focusing on. Is there something like when I'm evaluating a patient, you know, I, I may not remember everything, but what can I not miss? What what is the one question you always ask the family? Yeah, that well, and that's actually an important question because what we've learned since publishing the American Academy of Pediatrics guideline is that some of these risk factors aren't actually very accurate. So this is what's published now. And I lead a group that has since studied these and come up with a risk score, which is not published yet. And we can certainly talk about, but what we do know is that all of these factors have good negative predictive value. So if they're absent, then you can be put into the lower, lower risk group. But what you're asking, Chris, is, is there some positive predictive value, particularly with one feature or another? And we're actually 
it's not, there's not a one-to-one relationship with any of these factors. I will say recurrent events. So it's not their first one. Then the chances are they're going to have more events. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be have a serious underlying diagnosis, but it does seem to imply that there's something going on and that deserves some investigation and, and addressing it. The other is prematurity, I think, for a couple of reasons. And the most important one is feeding-related problems or oropharyngeal dysphagia. Sometimes there's central apnea related to apnea prematurity that's of concern for the younger infants. But for the older infants, a lot of times there's feeding problems. And so prematurity can really be that risk factor that uh, that will point you in that direction. Got it. Since you asked for it, we got the next aliquot information. We have some feeding history here. So this is the first time dad has ever seen Bree do this. She is formula fed and drinks about three ounces every three hours. She sleeps in a crib on her back. Her pediatrician said that she's tracking well and meeting her milestones. No recent illness or no new medications. She lives with mom and dad and grandpa who comes to watch Brie at times will smoke. Dad thinks mom has an uncle with maybe a cardiac arrhythmia, but he's not really too sure. So what do you make of this aliquot here that you've just heard? Well, this is a great history. It gives us a little bit more insight into some of the maybe social factors that might contribute, some of the family genetic factors that might contribute, and then some of the feeding issues that might be contributing. So it, and then of course, development is important um, along with weight gain would be important. So I think it's, you know, if you had heard that during feeds, there's a lot of choking and gagging or after feeds, they're spitting up and choking and gagging on those. You might think of first oropharyngeal dysphagia. So it's that the problems of actually suck, swallow, breathe, which is, I think, one of the first developmental milestones that infants have. And so a very common problem that we may see and can be subtle and hard to diagnose unless you ask great questions, specific questions around the feeding history. And then the family history, you know, you mentioned I think it was a cardiac arrhythmia in a family member. And so prolonged QTC um, and other cardiac arrhythmias in infants that are undiagnosed can certainly present as a brief resolved unexplained event. So very important to consider that. And, and if there's a family history, really, you know, the, the test uh, that would be most desirable at that point is an EKG, and that is recommended in the AAP guideline. Um, I do like that you elicited a history of secondhand smoke exposure. Now, we don't know what the risk for a brew is related to secondhand smoke. Those studies haven't been done, but they probably they they should be because there's certainly a theoretical relationship between secondhand smoke and uh, having difficulty with the respiratory secretions and um, other related problems related to the inflammatory process from from the exposure. Quick question. So while we have you here, when you approach this patient and their family, when you first step in the room, how do you prime the scene? Like how do you try to alleviate some of the anxiety and the stress, right? Because the questions that you're about to ask are going to be very kind of anxiety producing questions. They're very intense questions, right? Because we really want to suss out, are there high-risk features? Are there things that are concerning? In in an environment where the, the parent or caregiver is already probably concerned and nervous, 
Um, do you have a spiel that you open up with to try to kind of set the scene and maybe alleviate some of that? Sure. Yeah. No, I start with, I'm a national expert in this area. No. <laughs> good, good, good. Great. I'm, I'll, I'll use that. <laughs> no, it's a, um, I, I like the way you frame this because perhaps the most pervasive feeling or emotion in the room is it's not always, but it can be fear. And so now I don't make assumptions that they're scared about these things, but I do inquire about, you know, how are you? Well, some of my first questions, how are you doing? How's, you know, what's life like with this new baby that you have, which is a, you know, a great time, but can also be stressful and very open-ended questions just to understand where they are and take their emotional pulse, because that'll really help how I ask my questions and how help me start to frame my response and understand what they're most concerned about. Um, One way to think about that is the term agenda setting. Um, which is if you ask those open-ended questions, then you understand what what it is that's most concerning to the family and you can target your evaluation to that. I do, um, after that, spend a fair amount of time trying to understand the event or characterize the event. Similar to the way neurologists teach us all to describe a seizure and understand what happened to seizures. So it's what happened, what was going on before this event? What happened during the event? How did the event stop? And then what happened afterwards? And if you really ask targeted questions to get in your own mind an understanding of what happened and then say that back to the family. So I oftentimes say, okay, now this is what I understood happened. I'm going to say it back. And let, can you please tell me if I am understanding it correctly? And I find that to be extremely helpful, particularly if there's multiple events. Now, of course, imagine the families had, you know, at least in our organization, I don't know how many physicians they would see in the ED. And then once they get admitted to the hospital, they have to tell this story multiple (laughs) times. Um, So sometimes if the story's already been told with that level of detail, I'll repeat back what I understood happened and have them verify too, which is another way to to do that. So you don't ask them to, to... repeat over and over what they've seen. So, so if the parent, you know, you, you're talking to the parent and you're sort of, you know, getting more of a history, you know, sort of, you know, going back and forth about what's going on, how do you relate to, what, what do you relate to them on how long it's going to take to work up the kid? Cause they're probably like scared, right? Like, do you say, oh, you know, you know, you evaluate like, oh, these are low risk. So, you know, we'll just get a couple extra tests here in the ED. And then if things are fine, we'll send you home. Or, you know, these are cons- the things that are in the high risk categories that you're talking about. You know, are these going to buy themselves a, a whole admission? Like, h- how does that look? And what are the things that, that tip you one scale or another of ED workup or admission? Yeah. So the first thing I'm asking myself is, is this a brief resolved unexplained event? Or is this a brief resolved explained event. And in fact, in our research QI collaborative, we call, we have a term for brew. And then the other term for brief resolved explained events is brie, which is also this patient's name, uh, which I love. (laughs) (laughs) That like just clicked for me. (laughs) Well done, Joan. Joan did it. I had to call it out. I I will forever take this for my case example. Thanks to Joan. 
Amazing. Um, but it, it's such a great reminder that sometimes you can readily explain these things. And so if the fame family is explaining an asymptomatic child currently who had you know, normal, what we feel as normal newborn events, but was scary to them. It could be periodic breathing of the newborn. It could be some choking and gagging and maybe laryngospasm from reflux or from a, a, a feed that didn't go as well as they typically do. So if it is one of those things that I can readily explain, then I'm like, great, it's not a brew. And I just explain to him what it is. And and then reassurance is pretty easy. If I can explain it with a fair amount of certainty, then I now know data that I think can help them understand the risk and really the spectrum of problems that they may be faced with. And once they, I can explain that to them, then we can talk about, well, should we do testing? Should we do hospitalization? Should we let you go home and just see what happens? And based on some research from that was just published this year in pediatrics, we had two studies that um, I think Joan has on the reference sheet here. I highly recommend reading these because they really are the first studies that allow, at least allow physicians and uh, pediatric providers the ability to explain this risk as we now understand it with brief resolved unexplained events. So what do I say, it, you know, if it is a brew? Um, the first thing I say is the good news is that 96% of these events end up being self-resolved and not a serious problem. And you can see the everybody's blood pressure go down in the room. And there's just a great sense of relief. And then of course, some families will be like, well, tell me about the other 4%, which is, it's a real problem. And the still the good news with those 4% of patients is that most of those problems are things that will get diagnosed safely, if you will, without contributing serious morbidity to the child, particularly if there's some delay in the diagnosis. And so things that, that are more common in that area are seizures with epilepsy and infantile spasms, which obviously would be concerning, but sometimes infantile spasms look like this. There's also laryngomalacia, so some air, anatomic airway abnormalities. And sometimes those need surgery and they're undiagnosed when they come in. But by and large, most of those things uh, can be diagnosed in a reasonable non-pressure timeline, if you will, where one could even debate the, the merit of hospitalization just to diagnose those things. And in fact, we know with epilepsy, for example, that even if you do hospitalize most of those children, it's not until later in their life do we actually have a degree of certainty that they have epilepsy or do we even get to the, the threshold of where they'll need treatment. Yeah, I think that's great. I think in general, digging into the guidelines of things that you commonly see, right? Guidelines are long, they're extensive, but for me, it's always enlightening to understand where do these recommendations come from, who played a part in them, and then subsequent follow-up studies. And I think for me, what was so enlightening here is understand like the evolution of Alti to Brew. Um, and then a lot of the data we had was based on Alti studies. And we're just now really being able to study, you know, brews um, or breeze. 
And the, the, the papers that your group put out, I think are remarkable. And I think what you just said is incredibly helpful and something that I will truly use in clinical practice because I, I thought the one paper where you guys highlighted that only, I think, 87% of patients don't meet the AEP clinical practice guideline for low risk criteria. Um, and so you're often going to be having these conversations where you don't get that easy out. You know, we often like to say, well, you know, we have criteria and thankfully you're in the lower risk category. And so you're just not going to be able to use that very frequently um, until likely these will be revised at some point in the future based on the studies you guys have done. And so being able to understand really the data behind what is higher risk, what does that mean? What does it actually suss out to be? Um, and using those, you know, those clinical facts to reassure parents or, you know, justifiably go down a different pathway if that's the way you have to go. Um, so I thought what you just said there was was really valuable. I think that's great. Yeah, Max, and I'd like that you called out uh, that 87% of the patients we typically see in the ED and in the hospital qualify as higher risk under the current AAP guidelines. And I think that will change, like you said, with the revision of the guideline, which it's, um, it is due, we're due to, to revise it. And so um, I think this is, you know, an important caveat of everything that we talk about today is that likely in a year or two, uh, the recommendations will look different. So it's going to be important to pay attention to the release of new recommendations going forward. Because that means we're just going to have to bring you back when they when they <laughs> I would love it. <laughs> we better get this one out fast. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking about counseling with, with the family and looking at the patient and looking at, you know, things that confer higher and lower risk and that, you know, and then, you know, they may not always be low risk, but obviously discussing a lot of the things that may be causing bruise may be explained later and less and can be done less urgently. How do you think, you know, in terms of like socioeconomic racial disparities, uh, how, how do you think this plays into our our diagnosis, our workup and our management of these patients? Do, do we see disparities in this area or we're not, I assume there are, but um, what, what are your thoughts on that? And you know, what do we see? In, in, in yeah, um, it's a question I think about a lot. And the big answer is, I don't know, because I don't think we've done adequate study in this area yet. But you're right. What we do see, we do see disparities. And in the study that we did with um, our QI and research collaborative, which included 15 hospitals across the country, what we did see pretty clearly is that Black and African-American patients had different rates compared to the other patients for a lot of things. And that could be admission rate, that could be testing um, and that could even be, I, I can't recall off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure I think it was linked to state too. Now, I think the question in my mind, first of all, are what are the social factors contributing to those disparities? And it could be the same social factors that we see for a lot of kids that come from different levels of privilege um, and different experiences with racism. But when I think about, about the Black and um, African-American patients, I wonder also if the um, criteria for color change is a factor. Because if you think about skin tone and your ability to assess whether somebody's cyanotic or has pallor, I think that, um, that it, at least 
historically, we have not done a great job as a medical community as taking into underlying skin tone as a factor in our ability to accurately do things. And does racism play a part into that? Most likely. And so I don't know to what degree, but I think it deserves some exploring. Um, but I, like I said before, I think all the other social factors will play into this. If you think about the disparities just in birth, infant mortality, and postpartum care, even breastfeeding, all of those have threads into the brief resolved unexplained event population that will likely be perpetuated, if you will, um, if they're not addressed otherwise. Okay, so from here, can we just go back to Brie here and just, like, I guess, characterize what that event was? Was that a brew? Was that a low-risk brew or a high-risk brew? How do you put together her case? Yeah, so based on the information I have, it sounds like, first of all, it was a brief resolved unexplained event. I don't hear an explanation in the characterization. So I didn't hear, for example, that, you know, it happened with feeds and she was choking and gagging during the feed and then had this. Um, it sounded like she had an event that was uh, somewhat spontaneous. And so I think what's probably best is to let's look at the definition of a brew and think through her experience, which does she meet those criteria? So the way the AAP and our group defined it was that a, a brief resolved unexplained event is an event in an infant under a year of age, which Brie is. She's 65, 65 days old, if I remember. And mm -hmm. the father, who's the observer, reports there was this sudden brief and now resolved episode, right? So it he doesn't know exactly how long it lasted, but it seemed like it was brief. And it certainly seems resolved, and she seems to be well appearing now. She doesn't have a fever, she doesn't have bronchiolitis symptoms, et cetera, et cetera. So she seems to be qualifying for those aspects of a brew. And then if you think about, well, did she have cyanosis or pallor, which are the first criteria? So did she turn blue or was she pale? It sounds like there was concern that she turned blue. Now, you would want to dive a little bit deeper into this and say, was she just blue around the lips or was she just blue around the hands, which would be explainable form of color change, which is acrocyanosis versus did she turn blue in the face um, or some other color? And then, of course, pallor sometimes happens when you're choking or gagging um, or you lose consciousness. And so sometimes those can be helpful to distinguish. So that's the color change is one important feature of this. Then the absent, decreased, or irregular breathing. And this is really meant to assess for apnea. So was there a cessation of breathing that was greater than really by definition, at least according to our sleep study doctors and pulmonologists, greater than 20 seconds, right? That's apnea. And if there was apnea, was it central and that it was her brainstem that wasn't working and didn't coordinate with the breathing response? Or was it obstructive and that there was something in the airway creating a cessation of airflow? That oftentimes um, is easier to distinguish than most people understand because obstructive apnea usually is associated with some struggling to breathe. So there's this paradoxical movement of the diaphragm, um, right? So they're trying to breathe. There's an ability to get air over the vocal cords, essentially. And so that struggle 
is an important historical question to ask. It can help you understand, was there apnea? Was it central? Was it obstructive? The reason why central apnea is really important to distinguish is brain injury, particularly subdural hematoma from abuse, can present with central apnea. And that's absolutely something none of us want to miss if that's occurring. Then the third is change in tone. So is there high tone, low tone? Was the tone changed during the event while choking and gagging? Or was it just spontaneous loss of tone? Um, and the, the issue here is what you're trying to detect is seizure-like activity. And the challenge with infants, as many of us know, is that infants don't present with stereotypical tonic-clonic seizure activity. And so it can look like a period of high tone, a period of low tone, and sometimes some stereotypical seizure activity with, let's say, eye deviation or those sorts of things. And then finally, the fourth thing that you want to consider is, was there an altered level of responsiveness? In particular, was there a loss of consciousness? Now, anybody that's been in pediatrics for a a little bit of time knows that Infants have a lot of immature responses, and consciousness is one of those that can actually be kind of hard to distinguish because they go into sleep-wake cycles quite frequently. And so that's a hard one. But what you're trying to decide is, was there, particularly with a period of apnea, maybe a breath-holding period, was there a loss of responsiveness? Now, we see loss of consciousness oftentimes with breath-holding spells. And, you know, classically, we teach that breath-holding spells occur in, let's say, a toddler who gets angry, holds their breath intentionally or non-intentionally, then passes out, wakes up, and after turning, you know, probably blue or pale, and then is completely fine once they wake up. The interesting thing and some of the stuff we found is that breath-holding spells actually occur in a lot younger ages than toddlers. And we see a fair number of breath-holding spells in our study population in kids, even under six months, but between six and 12 months, there's quite a few kids that have breath-holding spells. So I say this when we think about loss of consciousness, it's in that context of might it have been in that sequence uh, that we would typically see with a breath holding spell where it starts with an infant getting upset and crying and leading to a loss of consciousness. So just to summarize again, the four things you're looking for, change in color, change in breathing with apnea, change in tone, and then change in consciousness. Are there any other tests that we haven't talked about that you think are important in part of our workup of patients like this or, um, you know, we spent a lot of time just looking at history, you know, gathering other information, obviously based on what we're seeing, whether we're seeing, uh, you know, you're seeing bruising, we're doing, working up that one. If we're, you know, we're seeing, you know, possible apnea, we going down one. Is there anything that you universally get in all these patients? Well, you know, back in the day before the brew guideline, it was very common to admit these patients, they get a panel of tests might include very non-specific things like a CBC, electrolytes, you know, all the favorites, the fan favorites in, in the ED, chest x-ray. And what we now know through prior research and then with our group is that those tests are very unlikely to lead to an explanation of a diagnosis. There's room certainly for tailoring those tests when there's an index of concern. So for example, Brie has a family history of cardiac arrhythmia. So in that setting, an EKG seems like a reasonable test where you're not 
where your risk of a false positive isn't going to cause more harm than your risk, the risk of a true positive or the occurrence of a true positive. And that's really an important thing to consider. So in that particular situation, that's true. But what we found in our studies, and some of these will be coming out soon, they're non-published at this point, is that an EKG, although recommended in the AP guidelines for occasional use or that, that clinicians may use it, we found that it actually rarely, if at all, led to a diagnosis, um, even when there was a family history. So um, I think you know my point there is wait for the, the new articles to come out once they're peer-reviewed. But to also think quite critically of does this is this test in this pretest population going to be yield a positive result, and is that positive more likely to be true positive or false positive? But to your question of what test, if any, would we always do? The one thing that I think can be helpful, particularly when you don't have an explanation for this, is a period of continuous cardiorespiratory monitoring. And the sleep study doctors and the pulmonologists tell us that if you observe somebody for at least four hours, you will detect most major conditions that uh, contribute to a brew. And so ideally, that's done in the emergency setting and not a reason to hospitalize. Um, but right, ERs are holding a patient for four hours in the ED is a very challenging thing, particularly with the mental health crisis that they're facing right now. And so I think you have to balance the benefit of that test in that setting with all the other things going on, but it can be helpful. And overnight, if they are admitted, that test can be helpful because we do know that if they're admitted, they have about a 20% chance of having another event in the hospital. And so if you think about that and being able to capture that on a, in a, on a monitor, your chances of being able to explain that are a lot higher than had you not had that that period of uh, better observation. Now, the caveat to that is that most of the time what we diagnose is something self-limiting and related to normal infant behavior. And so it's not necessarily to uncover a serious underlying diagnosis, that 4% that we've been talking about. But if you're a family member who's really worried about this, it first of all gives you better understanding to the problem. And the other thing is it potentially gives some solutions. So if it's, again, related to, let's say, feeding, just having a speech-language pathologist do some feeding counseling can go a long way for these families and their well-being. So having said that, Chris, what I would say is the continuous monitoring, I almost always consider, if they are admitted, an evaluation by our speech-and-language pathologist for oropharyngeal dysphagia, even if I'm not getting a great history of it. Because even if there isn't apparent to the caregivers, it might be something that they're not picking up on. And so just an observed feeding by a trained person can be very helpful. But short of that, I don't recommend any screening tests across the board. If there is, and I, I'll just refer for your listeners to a great paper that some of the leaders of the AEP guideline wrote on higher risk management. There's a framework for the management of higher risk infants. And in figure one, it's you can actually Google this quite easily if you just do higher risk 
um, and pediatrics. It, I think it comes up. But down below, you can see it says if there's a concern, for example, of silent aspiration or feeding problems, you can consider a speech and language pathology evaluation. And then if you're real concerned, you can do a video-assisted swallow study. For example, if there's concern for obstructive apnea without an explanation, you can have ENT consult and do uh, a scope at the bedside, which can diagnose laryngomalacia quite readily, right? So again, if you're getting this history of noisy breathing, that can be helpful. Um, and if there's a concern for seizures, our neurologists, it's interesting, particularly those on the APCPG, don't recommend hospitalization, but they do recommend outpatient evaluation where they may get an EEG, they may get head imaging, but they don't necessarily recommend doing it in the hospital because it usually in that moment doesn't lead to diagnosis. And so most of that can be done as an outpatient. And so to be clear, a lot what you said earlier about like no blanket tests, consider potentially like monitoring for the four hours. Um, those are in the context of a low risk patient who maybe there's a little more shared decision making. You don't have good PCP follow up or things like that. Um, and then this paper you're referencing um, where they have the kind of higher risk framework. Um, I was going to ask about that. So they suggest kind of labs, workup, kind of things to do in these higher risk patients. And I think kind of running on the list, they, they mentioned EKG, the pulse ox for, you know, four hours, RVP, hemoglobin, or hematocrit, blood glucose, lactate, bicarb or VBG. Um, consider pertussis based on kind of uh, epidemiology in your area and then risk factors. And then the screening for maltreatment or feeding disorders. And you had kind of touched on that. In those patients, is your practice generally to do all of those things if they're not lower risk or higher risk? Um, or do you similarly kind of tease it out based on what's in front of you? Um, and then the second follow-up, do all those patients get admitted? Or if you can turn these around quickly in the ED, is it still okay to go home from the ED if that you know first-tier workup looks Yeah, reassuring? Max, I, I think you hit on one of the most important and I think challenging things uh, with taking care of these patients. And so, you know, you already mentioned that 87% of these patients are higher risk. And so the AAP guideline doesn't apply. And then we have the this framework, which does, at least back when it was written, seem to indicate that these tests should be considered. The important part of this framework was it was really expert consensus. It wasn't based on available evidence. Now what we have, um, based on the, the, the two papers that came out this year in pediatrics, is even a better understanding of the risk in this higher risk group. What we now know, and we didn't know at the time of writing this paper, is that that 87%, most of those are really not, they're not at risk for a serious underlying event or a diagnosis rather. And so this testing, we'll call it screening testing, if you will. So something you would do in everybody is, I think it doesn't make as much sense as it did then. And I wouldn't recommend doing this testing anymore in a blanket way. And I certainly wouldn't recommend admitting every patient. What I would recommend doing is some shared decision-making with the family. Uh, when it comes to the value of testing, and when it comes to the value of admission. And so if you go back to what I tell my families, which is, well, 4% of, of kids with your child's problem, four out of 100, will have a serious underlying diagnosis. 96 out of 100 
will have a self-limiting condition. They may have a recurrent event. About one in five will have a recurrent event, but that doesn't change necessarily the fact that it's still a self-limiting condition. And so then you can say, well, we can do some testing, perhaps targeted to some of the features of the event or their risk factors that you elicited. And so you know, I'll give you just a good example about pertussis testing. We have areas in Seattle that are completely under immunized for pertussis. And if a kid comes in with some perception of apnea, um, we do pertussis testing in everybody. And that's critical, right? There's a huge public health concern and, uh, and there is, could be significant morbidity associated with missing that. We can do that because we have rapid turnaround testing on pertussis, and so the families aren't hanging out in the lurch waiting for this test for a potentially serious problem to come back and a, a problem that needs to be treated. Um, so I think there are scenarios where this testing should be considered, uh, but I would never recommend at this point of our knowledge and our understanding that blanket testing be done. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, so... I'm going to bring us to a close here. Do you have any main take-home points for our listeners? I do. Um, <laughs> I do. Love it. Um, first of all, brew, not brewy. <laughs> Remember his patient's Good. name, Bree. So brief resolved explain event. So if you can explain the event readily, with just your pediatric knowledge, after doing a history and physical, it's not a brew. So remember that. And then if it is a brew, remember to do shared decision-making with your family. First, there's a lot of reassurance here that 96% of the time, it's a self-limiting condition, probably related to the immaturity of the infant, which all infants have. Um, it, there is some value in understanding that better. Like, for example, if there's feeding difficulties, uh, but it doesn't necessarily justify testing and hospitalization. And that, if if those decisions are made, it should be based on the concerns that the family is bringing to you, not a concern that there's something serious and undiagnosed necessarily um, that uh, that is that worrisome. And because the testing won't lead to that explanation by and large most of the time, and hospitalization itself won't. And then again, to remind them that four percent do end up being something serious. But most of the time, those diagnoses happen after hospital discharge, not even during hospitalization. And then uh, I think another really important point is follow-up. And sometimes we miss this with families. It's uh, They just had something really concerning. They're going through a really tough time. They're sleep-deprived, um, and they've got a newborn. They may have multiple kids at home. Who knows what's going on, right? So be curious figure out what's going on, but do have them follow up with their um, primary caregiver um, so that they can uh, let them know if these events are continuing, if they're getting some better understanding um, from what's happening because they've continued. And then maybe there will be some conservative treatments that really help them and help their child. That was great. That's all really helpful. I think you just did a great job addressing kind of the space between, right? The space between the guidelines and the recommendations, the the day-to-day the -day encounters that we have commonly with these. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Yeah. Anything near well, you and dear know, to your heart? I mentioned um, that we have – there's a fair number of studies coming out of this large study that we've been doing as a collaborative with these 15 sites. 
And one of the things that we have developed that's in the submission process right now is a risk calculator that's got a little bit more fidelity, if you will, for rather than lower or higher risk, it gives you a score. And rather than drawing an arbitrary threshold, it gives you a score that helps present to the family the risk of not doing something. So the risk of not testing um, or the benefit of not testing, the risk of not hospitalizing versus hospitalizing so that you can really do that shared decision-making with the data. So that um, there is currently one on MD Calc, which I, I think a lot of people use, and I'm a big fan. Um, and they've just been great partners from the get-go. They've been making um, the brew risk calculator before, independently from our work. And we've now partnered with them on the research side to develop this more shared decision-making tool. So, um, like I said, be on the lookout for it. Hopefully it gets published soon. And I really do think it'll be helpful for, for doing more shared decision making and inclusivity with the families. Nice. Is this tool going to have a name? Is it going to be like Boo Tool or something? I, um, you stumped me on that one. Now I've got to, um, I, you know what? I would love if your listeners have ideas for the name. Um, I would love to hear them. So they. <laughs> uh, yeah. Social we'll, media we'll, call out and name competition. The name of the tool. That would be, that would be great. I but definitely it. Brewy Toolies. Could be, right? <laughs> Brewy Toolies. <laughs> Thank you, Joel. Again, I appreciate you um, giving us the time today to talk to us about this very important part of managing pediatrics. And definitely, I would love to have you back again when, when we have all these new studies coming up in the next year. That would be great. I'd really enjoy that. And I really had a great time talking with you all. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been another episode of the Cripsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.cribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or any other place podcasts are given. You can contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Joan Park, as well as our executive and co-host for this episode, Dr. Max Cruz, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I have been Chris the Chew Man Chew. I've been Joan Park. I've been Max Cruz, and good night, Cashlag. See y'all. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.